welcome to the Best Work Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Henley-Smith. The goal of this show is to uncover the personal stories of successful software engineers, founders, thinkers, and leaders who are all navigating their own working journey. Finding our best work is often this hidden journey, uncovered through an ongoing conversation with ourselves and the world around us. Every one of these episodes is packed full of timeless ideas you could apply to your own life. In this conversation, I speak to the founder and chief CTO coach at CTO Craft, Andy Skipper. Andy was previously the CTO at Made.com, Lumatrix and Comic Relief before founding CTO Craft. After finding himself in a CTO role at a pre-product startup almost by accident, Andy had his first experience of burnout. Experiences like this early on in his career seemed to have fueled Andy to look for opportunities that save people from similar circumstances, highlighting red flags to people early so they don't have to learn through experience. We discuss self-awareness, Andy's early influences, and the value of professional coaching, as well as Andy's own experience with chronic illness and how that's affected how he uses his energy effectively. He has a deep care for individuals, learning from environments where he wasn't able to access the support he needed to grow. Andy now places a lot of focus on helping to improve the individuals within a team, not the entire unit, putting more emphasis on a coaching style of leadership driven by empathy. Our conversation is highly personal, and by going so deep, we uncover truths all of us experience, but don't know how to articulate. Multiple people recommended I speak to Andy, and after listening, I think you'll know why. What work do you do to create work for others? Yeah, well, I suppose as in, in my current role as a business owner, <clears throat> you know, fundamentally, I have uh, I have created a, a series of opportunities for people to work. You know, and and also for a bunch of very very um, generous volunteers who are members of the the community that I run, who are actively helping us build something bigger. But in, in terms of shaping the kind of work that they do, I think probably I, I help most thematically, but also as a kind of mentor and as a, um, you know, a, a, point of, a, a point of knowledge in terms of community and, um, and work-life balance and all that sort of stuff. So I have a, a lot of experience supporting other people going through those kind of journeys as well. So I think that's that's kind of that's kind of it basically. But I I have very strongly held beliefs about the importance of a, a leader in terms of creating a culture of um, compassion, and I think compassion is a a large part of how you create a team that gets to their best work. Um, if you want to put it that way, you you can't really create a an environment 
for people to produce their best work without being highly individually compassionate to each of them. I think a lot of lot of leaders miss out on that, um, and they they think of the group as an entirety and not think about the individuals and their their personal needs and so on and so forth. Um, my my personal leadership style is very much kind of coaching centric, I would say, um, which is kind of how how I became a coach and how I started CTO Craft as a as a community. I am um, my preference is always to focus on building up individuals within a team um, while not losing sight of overall performance and productivity and all that sort of stuff. Why is compassion so important to you personally? Where does that come from? It's a really good question. I mean, I think same as anybody else, I, I, I have a specific set of experiences from my, my childhood. I have... Um, points of reference from my parents. I have, um, I've been in situations where I haven't been led with much compassion that have stuck with me. <clears throat> Excuse my throat. Um, yeah. Like I what? Think, like what? Um, so certainly I've worked under some very, very um, kind of authoritarian and, um, and absentee leaders in the past which has been quite damaging in a way i've also been in businesses where there has been more pressure than really there needed to be from founders and from um the board of directors and so on and so forth is there an example that sticks in your mind yeah yeah so and um, let's see when when i was an engineer so way back in the day um, I I took my first London-based role back in whatever it was, 2005. Um, and, you know, without wanting to name any specific uh, companies or individuals, I think the, the leadership there was um, very, um, very agency-like in that they were quite old school. They were very focused on uh, building personal brands. They were very focused on um pushing stuff out of the door very quickly and they weren't particularly interested in the the team and the people within the team other than you know to socialize and uh, you know go out for drinks with and so on and so forth and that that meant there was all the more pressure on the individuals within the team to um to go the extra mile to perform outside of you know their their comfort zone which is great, that's fine, but you kind of need some support in doing that. You can't do that as a, a bunch of individuals. Um, and I, um, you know, I, you know, again, without wanting to, <laughs> without wanting to name any specific people or any um, uh, companies, um, I felt that I was having to fill in the gaps a little bit, and that's kind of in a way how I how I found myself l- moving towards leadership roles. Because I kind of um, I supported the the other engineers in the team. I took on a bit more of a a mentoring role um, without getting any of that support myself. It's interesting that the when when I asked you that question, where does that compassion come from? I did so almost expecting you to say what you said, which right. was <laughs> I had a boss that was difficult. I had a leadership style that didn't really run in the way that I wanted and i reacted against it and 
that's interesting that, that I guess there are two scenarios where that could play out. One is you're inspired by another compassionate leader that you you want to emulate. And the other is that you're you react to an exp- a negative experience you have, um, and also often uh, it's a reaction to the negative rather than an, uh, a, a a kind of duplication of the positive. Yeah, sadly so, sadly so. I think the the chances of ending up in a a, a business where the leadership and the culture is exactly what you want it uh, want of it is um, very slim, especially in your first role. I think. Isn't you're very very lucky if you end up in exactly the kind of situation you want to be in culture wise. Yeah, and you said that there were moments from your childhood that have inspired your compassionate leadership style. What times um, resonate most? Um, I'm not sure if there are any specific times, but both both my parents are incredibly incredibly generous and compassionate and thoughtful and. Um, you know, very warm and fuzzy <laughs> in, in, in a literal sense when it comes to my dad. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that's a, also you know my extended family. They're um, they're very socially aware. I'd say is a good way of putting it. But they're also just very nice people. I think I, it quite literally boils down to me growing up around people who wanted to help other people and cared about other people and were just very generous and, and sweet natured and so on and so forth. How was your view of work and then your eventual choice of work impacted by your, your parents? That's a really good question. Neither of my parents are particularly commercially minded. I would say, I think I was a bit more, commercially minded when I was in my early 20s, which is how I sort of got drawn, I guess, towards startups and um, and eventually created my own businesses. Um, I think I probably needed to build a bit more of a, a thick skin than they have, or they, they had at the time, at least. Um, so I kind of had to, it, I, I see that generosity and that niceness is is a massive kind of backbone of what I do and how I do it but I did have to fight against it in some ways you know I did have to to build some of my own life skills I did have to build some of my own social patterns and so on um, to be able to do it like this because they were so compassionate that it was it was it was as they were they were so warm and fuzzy yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. You know, not not to say they were gullible or weak or you know anything like that, but uh, I do think they um, they would have needed a bit more of an edge to um, to do the kind of things that I've done. Uh, yeah, so, it does beg the question: where did that edge come from, and how, why did you not also end up? Not that there's anything wrong with it being being warm and fuzzy. It's a really good question. It's a really good question. I think um, those formative experiences in the companies that I was working with uh, probably make a difference. I think I probably do have a bit more of an edge naturally than my parents do um, in that 
I'm maybe a bit more suspicious than they are <laughs> and maybe a, a bit more, a bit less risk averse as well, I would say. And I, I'm not sure entirely where that comes from, but, um, but certainly I used that to, to hone my edge, I guess you would say. Um, yeah, I think leaving home, you know, going to, going to university and all that sort of stuff kind of gave me a whole load of different, um, different perspectives as it does with everyone basically and more exposure. I think I was lucky in my, my early days that I got exposed to a lot of people that I saw who were, you know, successful entrepreneurs and blossoming and, you know, creating value for other people and so on and so forth and who had behavior patterns who that were, you know, very different from what I'd experienced in my family life. Um, I think also, you know, there are certain aspects of my, my family life, my childhood that I kind of pushed away from quite heavily. So when I, when I was growing up, for example, my, my dad is, um, uh, he's agoraphobic. So, and we lived on a, a small holding in the middle of nowhere in West Wales. So, you know, there, there was a, an element of wanting to both escape that, but also avoid that when I was, when I was older, I think that did kind of push me towards the more kind of <clears throat> edgy businessy, uh, kind of more commercially minded people as friends and as people that I wanted to work with. Um, yeah, I think that's true. I think that's true. But yeah, I, I think I am just a, a slightly more edgy, neurotic person than my uh, my parents are, put it that way. There's a, uh, Naval Ravikant has the, uh, the that story about a, a elephant and a unicycle, where if you're a, um, if you go, if you can walk down the street and you see an elephant, it's like, uh, okay, right, it's, it's, a, it's an elephant. If you walk down the street and you see a unicycle, it's like, okay, right, it's a unicycle. But if you walk down the street and see an elephant on a unicycle, you're like, like what the hell is going on here? And almost as if like, how on earth could you have these contradictions exist in the in the same place? And as you were talking through both that warm and fuzzy side and your edge, it feels so visual and so tangible. One is literally the edge of an object, and the other is a a a, a something soft. And as you were talking, it it all, it it reminded me of this kind of almost this subtle search that I think some of us pick up on our working journey where we recognize that the the contrarian is uh, not necessarily a, a, a bad thing and though it might be unusual it can also be uh, hugely beneficial because somehow you're able to to mix disciplines and, and you can see things on, on the edge and as you explain that it, it almost felt like the meeting point between those two contradictions. Yeah, I think so. I think that's right. You know, I think self-awareness is a big uh, part of success in this kind of leadership role. I think it's being prepared to look at where certain aspects of your personality and your, um, your emotional state come from. And um, I think a lot of first time CTOs or first-time leaders that I work with, they haven't quite reached that state of self-awareness. And so they're, they're still very, quite often at least, they're, they're still very fixed in the 
um, the individual contributor, you know, autodidact, self-sufficient, you know, solo problem solver kind of mentality, where they actually have a lot more going on under the surface that lends itself more to leadership and kind of culture building and so on and so forth that they need to draw out of themselves a little bit. I think that that's that's why a lot of people go for coaching or therapy or, you know, join professional network groups like CTO Craft and that kind of thing. But, um, yeah, also I'd say fundamentally there isn't a right or a wrong balance of the, the edge and the softness, right? And I think it's... It can be a lifelong uh, quest to try and find the the right balance of your uh, if you have both of those in your psyche. Um, but I don't think there's necessarily a, a single sweet spot, and, and that sweet spot is going to change throughout your life anyway, depending on what you're doing, where you're working. Um, but it's 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 a useful journey to go on at some point for sure. If if you if you don't think there's a specific sweet spot, is is there a a point in between the two that you optimize for? Yeah, as as I say, I think it's specific to your situation. You know, if you um, uh, if you are leading a team of 150 people and you've got three kids at home and so on and so forth, your sweet spot is going to be very different from. If you're a 25-year-old first-time CTO leading a, a team of two in a co-working space and um, and living in a bachelor pad. That's fascinating because I, I so deeply remember when we were first starting Cord how awful I felt because I felt I was so far away from that soft part of me. Right. I felt right. I was being pulled the whole time to being on my edge and... Uh, uh, constantly behaving in ways that I that didn't feel like the truest version of me. Whether it was because I needed to get this project done or move on to this place or make this happen, or and uh, it certainly helped as Cord has grown that I felt I've been able to lean more into the softer sides, and that's been a better suit of my character. But I remember so so vividly at that point in time, and you're so right that different circumstances require different parts of it because it felt so alien in that moment not being able to to kind of feeling like it was out of kilter mm, yeah i think you get to a point where um there is a danger of it being out of your control as well you know so i, I see a lot of startups whose founders they hang on hang on as leaders of the company you know well into uh, the life cycle of the company while still being very kind of uh, edge focused. I don't, I don't know if that's the right way of putting it, but they they're still very operational and executional and so on and so forth. Where they should really be stepping back and looking at the health of the company and the culture and the you know the bigger picture and the um, and they should have people that they delegate the the operational and the the execution to. Um, so I think it's you know you you have to take control of. When that sliding scale moves, it, it doesn't. It can't just happen naturally. Um, it, it needs to be some a lever that you pull. Mm -hmm. You you said that 
self-reflection is one of the big things that has helped you but also has helped the, the some of the ctos that you've you've coached and i'm sure you get this a whole lot um the, the, the kind of what are the tangible benefits to a cto of of doing that coaching like and what's the difference between kind of getting a mentor who can tell me what type of architecture this type of thing should look at versus talking to someone about my own personal journey my childhood and it's a a a an understandable question like why is me as the cto reflecting on my childhood going to help my company grow how do you answer someone in that in that scenario well well first of all i'd say we don't generally uh don't generally step into uh kind of childhood trauma and that kind of thing i think if it comes to that kind of point generally we uh we refer them to a therapist or a, something like that so it is purely professional coaching, basically, unless there's a, an ad hoc conversation about <coughs> a spe specific childhood trauma that's led to uh, um, to a certain type of behaviour. But no, it's it, it is more about self awareness and it's about um, uh, personal change. You know, so I think having somebody who is familiar with the the industry that you're working in actually helps quite a lot um, as a coach in that you, you're you not mentoring them, you're not giving them the answers, you're not uh, sharing how you would solve some of their problems, but you do have a different level, I guess, of empathy for the kind of situation they're in because you, you've more than likely been in that situation. Um, but people come, come uh, to us for coaching for all sorts of different reasons, you know, some of them want it as an ongoing thing to continue building their skills and to get around certain blockages that they've uh, that they've come across in how they do things. And some people have a very specific kind of major challenge that's um, you know existential in some cases to them and their business. Um, so it's it's all manner of stuff, but it, it is all about personal and. Uh, professional development rather than you know eking out the uh, the progenitors of certain ways of thinking from their their childhood or their you know their relationships and so on and so forth uh, yeah very rarely very rarely bridges into that to be honest mm. we're all looking to be the very best versions of ourselves and oh, yeah. your <laughs> your 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 job is to is it's quite uniquely aligned because you are that is your job your job is to enable other people to be the best versions yeah. of themselves so an interesting question that i wanted to ask you is what makes a great client for you like when someone comes to you when you're assessing someone and you're trying to figure out like wow i could really help this person grow or there are these big things that are going to stop me helping this person grow what things go go through your mind and how are you trying to to work it out yeah it's it's generally by the situation they're in and then by their personality so you know the, the way cto craft works we've got a, a whole bunch of coaches that we we share work amongst um so there is a there's an initial conversation that is had with the person to find out what kind of what kind of skills they want to build, what kind of issues they have, what kind of personality they have, what kind of personality they want to find in the coach. Um, but for me, for me personally, I, I have specific kind of 
areas that I will always pick up as a as a coach, which are things like uh, burnout and personal well-being. These are things that I I have experience in personally, so I I tend to to dive in with those because I can help people pretty quickly with that kind of thing. <clears throat> I also jump in where they have uh, inter leader relationship problems, for example. Um, so you know I've done a fair bit of kind of co-founder therapy kind of thing, um, which is a bit like couples therapy. Um, yeah, that's it. In terms of personality, you know, I, I don't have a massive filter. I, I tend to enjoy working with anyone who comes our way who's actively looking for help. I t- tend not to like working so much where coaching has been imposed on people, which which does happen in some cases. We, we generally shy away from working with people in that way but um i i prefer to know that somebody has actively gone out looking for support and that's my preference at least and is there a certain type of person where you feel like they're almost like a a level beyond uh the kind of normal person that you would you would look at so almost someone where you think not just that I'm going to help you solve your problems, but actually if we create a uh, a close working coaching relationship, I can see that at some point in the future you will uh, become X. Do you ever have that experience? And, and if so, what, what constitutes that person? Yeah, I, th- I think that it's my aspiration in, in every case, <laughs> not, not as the exception that they will all turn as something, you know, spectacular and they're all in some cases some of them eventually turn into coaches themselves which is brilliant um i don't think there's a single criteria that i look for and you know will this person go the distance or will this person turn into x y or z i think it's um yeah it's it can be it can be dangerous to kind of go looking i think for specific people who you think will experience the biggest change I think what what I would prefer is to treat everybody as a um, as capable of taking those big next steps and doing big big things and work backwards from there rather than uh, kind of looking for looking for specific flags. Hmm. And it sounds like one of the the big parts to that relationship is your own personal ex- experience. And the deeper that personal experience, the more you can help that individual who might be going through something similar. Um, what are the deepest personal experiences that you've had that you now can help people through? Um, as, as I said before, I've, I've burnt out at least once, probably twice <laughs> in CTO roles. And I've, um, I've also supported people prior to being a, a, a coach formally. Um, in getting out of those uh, those kind of burnout death spirals, um, and that that's kind of my, I guess that's that's been the biggest kind of leading factor in me coaching. You know, I've I've experienced huge amounts of um, of pain in trying to do a good job as a CTO that I've rectified using my my own personal resources. Um, yeah, I think that that's probably it. In, in my first CTO role, I um, uh, I was 
brought in as a developer. This is a very kind of standard story. I was brought in as a developer. There was nobody there really to oversee development as a whole. It was a small team. It was a pre-product startup. Um, <clears throat> and I, I sort of stepped in and um, got given the CTO title by default, more or less. But I, I also just didn't have any experience of leading teams or with the, the scale or the pace or the, the ambiguity of startup work. Um, and I, I burnt out pretty quickly and stayed much longer than I should have, basically. Um, and there were some extenuating circumstances. I had a, a house fire and lost everything, and I cut the end of my thumb off during this time. Um, so I, what? it was a perfect storm. Um, and I basically took a year off after eventually, you know, sidling out. Um, but it, it taught me a lot about what the the factors were in me burning out. And it taught me a lot about how to a, avoid some of those factors, but also build a bit of a thicker skin so that I'd be able to deal with some of those external factors and compartmentalize and so on and so forth. I've taken that a lot into my coaching. I'd love to, to 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 break down some of the lessons that you found there. I mean, it sounds like an extraordinary set of circumstances that you find yourself in. Uh, a gift to the people you're now able to help, <laughs> perhaps perhaps not at the time. If you were to, and I appreciate this is a very difficult question, g get into the heart of the key learnings that you feel like you've been able to to pull from that experience, uh, what would they be? Yeah, I mean, some of them are not mind-blowing, right? They're so obvious in hindsight. But I think um, being kinder to myself was kind of, <laughs> kind of the biggest thing that I learned. I think when I, um, I'm a very conscientious person. So when I, when I jump into any project, I kind of, um, absorb some of it into my personality, if that makes sense. And I was very, very attached to this company. They'd, <clears throat> you know, they'd given me a big chance. They'd uh, taken a risk in giving me the CTO title. They had just taken a, a Series A, so they were, you know, being um, held accountable by this, uh, this very famous uh, set of investors, you know, Brent Hoberman and uh, Robin um, from Local Globe, et cetera, et cetera, and had a whole bunch of people you would definitely know to speak of on the board of that company. And I just kind of, I just kind of told myself at the time that I, I needed to be perfect at everything. And I didn't give myself any kind of space to make mistakes um, and at the same time, because of the, the compassionate, softer side of me, which we spoke about before, I was making sure that everyone that worked for me got those benefits. So I was, I was being the, the proverbial shit umbrella and making sure that they, they had all the, uh, the benefits of being protected from the stress and the ambiguity and so on. And at the same time, I was not just absorbing all of that stress and ambiguity and pressure. I was also putting pressure on myself and uh, it kind of took a bit of introspection during that year off to, to finally realize that I didn't need to be putting that kind of pressure on myself and I didn't need to be so protective of everyone else. Um, 
that's more or less what it boils down to. It's a whole bunch of different lessons I took from it as well in terms of trust and you know picking the right people to um, to delegate to and et cetera, et cetera, general leadership stuff. But underneath it all is this this feeling that you weren't kind enough to yourself in that moment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I'd say of of all the pressure that was on me as a CTO, at least sixty to seventy percent came from myself and my assumption about how much I should be performing, and that was not healthy. How do you know when you're being kind to yourself now? That's a really good question. I think I've, I've built a better compass. See now, I know when I'm overdoing it. Um, so my my situation has changed substantially since I was in that role. That was 2006, 2007. Um, and I now, you know, I have a family. I have a, a wife who holds me accountable. I have a, a kid who I have to make sure I reserve some energy for. Um, How's your thumb? Uh, thumb still hurts. <laughs> thumb still hurts 14 years later. There you go. But, oh, um, yeah, so, you know, I'm in a, a different um, I'm in a different position, but also I have a, a chronic illness which um, which popped up um, about eight years ago that I'm dealing with and which kind of forced me to take a very exacting lens on um, uh, on what I was doing, how much I was doing, uh, the relevance of what I was doing, et cetera, et cetera. And so, yeah, I have, have to be a bit, a bit more focused and a bit more mercenary now. When did you first find out you had a chronic illness? So that was uh, beginning of 2014. Um, yeah, so whatever that is, eight and a bit years ago. And it was just um, it was just after I'd left. So I was the, the first CTO at Made.com. Um and I built them up, you know, was very happy with where I'd taken it to, wanted to do other stuff. So I, I, uh, I stopped working there in 2013 to take on fractional roles, mainly so that I'd have more flexibility, time to spend my, my son who'd just been born <clears throat> and that kind of thing. And then I, um, I just started getting headaches out of the blue and problems with my, my sinuses um, so I immediately went in, had a bunch of surgery, had a bunch of therapy, um, physiotherapy, so on and so forth. And um, and that really went on for about five years. Um, and then during that time, I'd taken on a role. So I was CTO at Comic Relief and I'd done a bunch of other interim and consulting CTO projects that were great fun. I did a, a spy museum. I did um, a bunch of fashion-related stuff, um, great fun. But all the way through this, I was kind of cycling through different medications and therapies and diagnoses and so on and so forth. Um, and eventually, well, still still don't have a formal diagnosis, but uh, eventually they put a label of it of chronic daily headaches. Which is kind of a catch-all, but basically means I've I've had a headache since two thousand end of two thousand and thirteen, um, which occasionally flares up into full-blown migraines, um, and when I say occasionally, I mean sort of three or four times a month. Um, so that's it, and it, that that has been very kind of 
formative in me building the businesses that I built. So I initially during this time I I built a a consultancy of fractional CTOs. There were about eighty of us all together. <clears throat> where I was essentially you know, I was reducing the amount of actual CTO work I was doing and focusing more on building a, a brand for this other group of people. And that, that went quite well. And then eventually um, it sort of morphed into what I'm doing now with CTO Craft. So I found that a lot of the work I had done was actually more enjoyable because it was coaching people and kind of supporting leaders rather than coming in to pick up the pieces after they'd finished um, or burnt out in a lot of cases. And so CTO Craft kind of came from that, but it was also an opportunity for me to build something flexible, build something around my energy levels and my, uh, you know, the health problem. That's that's kind of where we are, and now I have an, an amazing team that I delegate quite a lot of stuff to. But it means I have that flexibility while still being able to produce something of value. I never thought that our conversation about fractional leadership would come from necessity rather than choice. Right. Well, originally it came from choice, but it became a necessity. Are there any other gifts that your chronic health condition has given you, if at all possible? Wow. That's, that's a really good question. Um, I think going back to what we were saying before about um having to give myself a talking to and having to be a bit more mercenary with my energy levels and my time. I think, you know, that that's a gift in a way, because I think if I'd been at full capacity and had been taking on the same kind of roles and same kind of projects, um, I probably would just be in a constant cycle of burning out if I'm honest. Um, and I think being unwell kind of has forced me not to do that in a way. Um, not that the opportunity hasn't been there and the opportunity is still there. <laughs> Even running my own business, you know, I could very easily pour myself into it and, and burn out again. But I think being ill uh, necessitates being a bit more, a bit more um, focused on how I expend my energy and the, the real return on investments and the, the real effects of uh, going overboard and, um, and not succeeding. So that's, that's the only gift I can think of. Otherwise it's a pain in the ass. Um, yeah. Or in the head. It's a, it's a constraint and that constraint is, is often so, so telling and so teaching. And there are other parts to our, our, our working life and our working choices that are immediately uh, impacted by different types of constraint in really in really healthy ways um but uh, I, I think hearing you talk about your your own constraints is is almost at the extreme there uh, that there aren't there aren't quite so many constraints that that disable you from being able to f f kind of fulfill your duties usually they're just kind of really focusing in and and as you were talking there I, 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 I was reflecting on my own experience and thinking yes I, how could I create 
these constraints in a positive way out of choice that weren't going to cause me the 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 harm that you're experiencing but instead can almost be positive ones that i i put up the deliberately why do i need to wait until i get to a point where i have a a a a real problem before i before i i create those constraints and i wonder what opportunities i i do have to create constraints proactively on under my own control it's a really interesting question i think the, the first thing that springs to mind is that you would need pretty good willpower to impose some ex- intrinsic constraints that you, could <laughs> actually, um, that you could actually benefit from. I suppose it comes down to stuff like habit building and um, goal setting. You know, but I th- I'd, I'd argue that having a rigid, rigid kind of set of extrinsic constraints, uh, it's not as romantic as it sounds, as you're making it sound. You know, I think you you do want to be able to flex on how you grow and um, and on your habits and so on and so forth. It, it, there there is such a thing as um, what's it called? Ego depletion. I don't know if you've ever come across this term. No. Where you you spend so much of your energy trying to reach targets or trying to um, diet or you know reach whatever goal you've set for yourself or um, so on and so forth that you eventually just end up with no resources to actually accomplish that stuff it's very very commonly seen in people who set themselves too many goals or too many constraints so, so and it, it's ego depletion so you you deplete your ego as you go through it yeah i think in in order to in order to meet a, a goal or in order to exact a small change in how you do things or how you see things or whatever, or to build a new habit, you do have to sacrifice part of your ego. That's essentially what you're doing. You're, you're saying this part of my ego that, um, this part of my ego that is essentially drawn to eating pizzas at the weekend I'm going to say, right, no, no more pieces at the weekend. So you're you're having to use energy to make that change. Your ego is what pays the price. That's my understanding of it anyway. I might be completely wrong. I mean, we see our ego as something negative there, whereas in fact you're 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 giving it value. <laughs> your ego is vital. Yes, your, your ego is a hugely important part of how you grow as a human being. How's it helped you? I think it's so it's made me value what I do more it's made me value the people around me more I think I I congratulate myself probably rightly or wrongly in having such a great bunch of people that are around me you know and I you know that's I, I can either say to myself that's just happenstance and that's um, you know that's just the luck of the draw where I can say to myself, I have drawn nice people to me and um, I am partly responsible, you know, and that, uh, that feeds the ego and the ego feeds that back um, as an example, you know, um, but I think ego is vital. You, you, you can't go through life being completely um, subservient to others and, 
you know, ig- ignorant of your own ability to make positive change. Um, I think it's actually dangerous to do that, you know, fundamentally. It's it's bringing me back to that burnout death cycle, and I'm right. imagining how that must have felt in that moment, and how depleting it must have been. How it must have felt like everything was coming out of you and being given to everyone else. And whilst you're putting up the proverbial shit umbrella, it's 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 all pouring. You're conscientious. It's it, it's seeping into you, but not into others, and you're just constantly giving and uh, being kind to yourself. And recognizing the value of your ego in some ways feels like uh, a response to that in some way. Yeah, yeah, 100%. You know, you you can't protect everyone from what's going on around you. You can't protect yourself from everything that's going on around you. And I think part of it is just acceptance that you're still good despite that. You know, we could get very kind of metaphysical and Buddhist and, you know, everything is, um, or suffering is important rather and so on and so forth. But I think fundamentally it's just an acceptance that you are good, you are capable, you are loved, despite all the stuff that you go through and despite all the stuff that you're having to deal with, that despite any mistakes that you make, that's what's important. Do you ever get any of your clients bulk at any of this? Yeah. Or do they, yeah. Yeah, constantly, constantly. It, it's, it's, it's interesting just how through the, uh, the course of our 50 minute conversation so far, we, we move from the very practical to the, to the very deep so fast, but the two do feel quite close to each other somehow. They are. Yeah. You know, I think it's about perspective and it's about um, willing to dig beyond the the superficial. So I think a lot of people who come our way, as I said before, the very, very common sort of pattern is that people will reach the CTO level or the, you know, leadership level in general through being a very good individual contributor and being very good at um, fixing their own problems and or, you know, dare I say it, copying and pasting a solution from Stack Overflow, something like that. And then when you get to leadership, uh, you can't do that. There's no copying and pasting. There's a different level of personal responsibility to the people that you're working with. So so I, I said yes very quickly to the question earlier on about whether people balk at this stuff. And that, that's generally... Uh, kind of the first port, port of call that you know they haven't accepted that there's a there's no single set of solutions to this uh, this kind of work um, there's no single approach to leading people and building a culture because a lot of it depends on you and your personality and your resilience and your you know whether you want to be hands on or hands off all sorts of different things and people who come from a background of there being a solution to every problem, at least one solution to every problem. um, It can be difficult for them to understand that it's not just right. Give give me a a playbook or give me a, um, give me a YouTube video. I can, I can watch that will give me the solution to this kind of problem. 
Um, and especially where it's an issue within them, you know, that a lot of uh, a lot of people hope that there will be a uh, a single thing that they can tweak in their life or a single set of actions they can take to overcome some very sort of baked in feelings about how they work with people or how they interact with people, how they, you know, build cultures or build teams or whatever. Um, and they do need to go off and do a bit more touchy feely stuff <laughs> and kind of get, get, um, get back into that understanding of where they've come from as an individual and what their hangups are. And, um, yeah, that could be difficult to stomach, especially first timers, that's very common. And as you go through that, at every point, you're always referencing that it's the individual that's the starting point, not you. And I, th that must be a common misconception because there, there must be a thought that, oh, well, if I go to Andy, I'm going to end up being a bit more like Andy. Right. <laughs> Whereas actually you're, you're, you're there to make them a bit more like themselves. Exactly. Yeah. No, that, that again, is a very common misconception. You know that they'll they'll come hoping to to learn from a guru who has all the answers and has done everything right throughout their career, or at least has made all the mistakes and and there are no more mistakes to make, and they've they've come out the other side, so they must um, know well. But no, it, it, you know, no coach is infinitely experienced in every single situation you might be in, or so on and so forth but I th as i said before you know i do take a lot of my own experience into how i coach people for sure um but i don't i don't want to i don't want everyone to be a carbon copy of how i do things because it's not 100 percent right anyway um yeah it's much more important that they become much more realized versions of themselves and much happier and more comfortable in what they do what role has privilege played in your search for work that's right for you? Hmm. So I suppose in the early days, I think I, I built a pretty good network of people. I wasn't particularly privileged when I, when I came out of uh, university. You know, I was same as everyone else. Um, I'd say my parents were sort of middle-class smallholders, um, in West Wales, I didn't, didn't really have much resource available to me uh, other than a 56k modem when I was growing up. That was pretty much it. So I, I wasn't, um, you know, I didn't go to Cambridge. I didn't um, have a whole bunch of connections. I didn't have any money. Um, so I'd, I'd say in those early days, not a lot. But I didn't fight against not having that privilege either. You know, I just kind of did my thing and I built code <laughs> and I got stuff done essentially worked for some cool companies but um I'd say when when I got to CTO kind of level I think I had a bit more privilege in my back pocket and that I'd made a lot of good connections so my my biggest kind of most powerful resource was the people that I knew so you know I'd, uh, I did make connections with you know big VCs and I made connections with you know, a couple of people who are running several companies who could kind of uh, be a, a bit of a lend an ear if I had any questions about the business side of things. And um, and then I also created a lot of privilege for myself. You know, I, I created 
a situation where I could pick and choose the kind of work that I went for. Um, and that, yeah, I, I suppose that's it, basically. But these days, I'd, I'm incredibly privileged. And I'd say the, the the network that I have is still the biggest resource. You know, I have a bit more financial stability and I have my family and so on and so forth, which are all massive privileges. But the the value of the network that I've built as a professional is, you know, that's the biggest thing that I I fall back on the most as a as a professional person, I guess. <laughs> Creating privilege isn't something that we talk a whole lot about. It, it, it feels more like actually we, we get given privilege. We have no choice about it. It's our, the conditions that are set that are outside of our control. Um, but as you reflected on that, there, it almost felt like at every point you're, you're seeing privilege not as something that's outside of your control but within it. Mm, well, to a point, to a point, I'd say. And I think that's maybe a, um, maybe a, a bit too blanket. But um, but certainly, you know, I don't. I believe everyone's capable of creating, not creating their own luck, but certainly setting themselves up better to take advantage of luck or privilege, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I certainly have. You know, I've I have I have done entire uh, kind of projects or entire uh, things to increase my visibility for example um i've done um volunteer work to increase my sense of well-being and to scratch the the kind of altruistic itch so i don't have to bring it into into work as much you know i, I was very altruistic and um and so on when i started working and that kind of became a um became an issue um, because I, I was doing <laughs> doing too much, basically, and so I, I created that uh, that kind of opportunity for me to uh, scratch that itch, to to get that part of me that needed to be kind of um, altruistic and uh, charitable and so on into a separate part of my life, so that I could uh, do different things in a professional sense. And be more a bit more mercenary, and you know, um, yeah, that's the kind of thing I'm thinking of. It's not that I created a, a big pot of money that I could have by the side so I could do anything I want or anything like that. It's more about taking taking advantage of situations to reduce the the external um, constraints that I had on the way I was working and the the kind of work that I did. It almost feels like the yin to your uh, self-reflective yang. It's almost as if on the one hand, we need to be able to constantly self-reflect and, and in order to understand our own inclinations and the directions that we want to head in our own life and and understanding ourselves more more deeply really helps with that. But it's almost as if you can't do that in isolation. You have to do that in the context of a a wider society and your you need to experiment almost you need experience the the chance to be able to do different things um and somehow you what comes very um that conscientious and compassionate side that comes more naturally by the sounds of things uh almost is kind of complemented by this ability that you've built to be able to look after, kind of spot those opportunities and and go after them, because ultimately we need both. Yeah, absolutely. 
you know, I don't know, I, I think my ability to, to spot those opportunities and create that privilege uh, for myself is a privilege in itself, you know, mm. Mm. <laughs> um, and not, not easily, um, not easily come by for sure. You know, I, I think, um, especially if you're wrapped up in a huge amount of, um, overhead with your work and your family and your, um, you know, your social life and whatever else, it can be easy to miss opportunities to, um, kind of give yourself a bit of a, a bit of a cushion or give yourself a bit of a, a cheat code in a way. But, um, yeah. So when you reflect after all this on what you choose to do with your working life, what are you optimizing for? Hmm. I'm, I'm optimizing for flexibility first and foremost. Um, if I'm very honest right now, that's a necessity because of the health problems. <clears throat> it's not where I would like to be. I'd like to be in, in a position where I'm optimizing for helping as many people as possible because that's, that's my nature. Um, you know, but part of the mission of CTO craft is to, help more startups succeed by helping their, you know, their CTOs succeed. Um, that's, that's really what I'd like to be optimizing for, but fundamentally I think the path to reaching that end goal is going to be a bit longer because I, I have to optimize for, for flexibility and, um, and reduce the, the impact of me getting ill. Um, that's, that's, where it is at the moment maybe it won't be there forever hopefully it won't be there forever but uh yeah that's it andy thank you so much for breaking down your story from the very beginning no problem no no good to talk to you all right man Alrighty. have a good afternoon thanks bye see you later bye the best work podcast is produced by the team at cord I'd love your advice on how we can make sure the Best Work podcast is having a profound impact on the way we all pursue our best work. Email me at bennettcord.co. You can also find a transcript of this conversation, insightful video content and more at cord.co slash insights. Thanks for listening.